you, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, good people. Welcome back to another episode of Profane Faith. I am your host and curator, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back. Um, well, yo, so I just I just be honest. Um, for those of new listeners, uh, thank you for joining in. Maybe this is your first time listening. I appreciate it. Uh, this is an ongoing podcast engaging with uh, religion, faith, race, gender, sexuality, uh, hip hop culture, um, and all that that gets mixed into that. And uh, there's a whole slew of seasons. So please subscribe, uh, check us out uh, wherever you find your podcast. You can check iTunes, Google, Stitcher, um, or you can just check us out at whitehodgepodcast.com. Um, but yeah, this week, for those uh, committed listeners and folks who've been around for a while, you know, I like to put stuff out as it pertains to the the the, the current climate and current, you know, culture that is that is happening. At the same time, I'm learning to back up and allow the time to marinate as it would. Um, in other words you know give things some time you don't always have to be right right on the cutting edge of everything and i think that's part of you know the ongoing issue that i have with the way at least here in the west that we do news and you know entertainment right it's like you got to be on that i remember one time i was working with a guy who uh was like i was trying to you know brand myself and he was like one of those cats and stuff and he was just like yeah well you got to catch you know you got to kind of anticipate what's going on and try to catch the hashtags and all the stuff and I was just like that just seems like a, a waste of energy for me like sure if I was a mega thick you know corporation and I had a team sure but I don't it's me um you know and I have a life outside of the other things that I do so I'm trying to fit this into one of the slices and provide a space and that falls into, you know, if you're listening to this in real time, what happened last week, right, was the verdict of uh, the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial. Um, thank God. Uh, and, and and whomever, however you want to, you know, think, uh, you know, for that, that uh, all three guilties came back and um, or all the verdicts, all three verdicts, excuse me, rather, um, came back guilty. And, you know, that was a moment uh, for me. Uh and uh, for a lot of people that engage in this work, right? Um, 
because so many times we've been there before, right? Where you think, okay, this is open and shut. We shouldn't even be having this conversation. Um, and we find out, you know, not guilty or guilty on a lesser charge. And, you know, they serve really no time, which is really the next part of that case is how much time um, is Derek going to serve? Um, and so I wanted to process that. And I thought about rushing an episode out this week because, you know, that would catch some of the hashtags and, you know, some of the conversations that are happening now. But I'm going to wait a week and I'm going to work on it this week. Uh, I reached out to some friends and colleagues and uh, uh, and just asked them, what were your thoughts um, on this case? Because this the case affected us in a lot of different ways. White, Latinx, right? Afro-Latino, black, you know, Asian Pacific Islander fam, LGBTQ. All of us were feeling a certain way about this. And I just wanted to kind of gain and get some perspective on that um this trial is not you know one of the first and as i'm sure most of our listeners know even as that verdict was being read there was another young black female being killed at the hands of the police uh this continues to go on um you know today at least i saw that uh merrick garland is going to be um you know pursuing charges at least the the feds are going to look into the brianna taylor case um you know whether anything comes of that or not i don't know um but i wanted to focus and talk a little bit uh you know just to kind of just you know have us pause a little bit what is what are the intersections of religion law uh race uh white cis hetero males um hyper masculinity right what are what are those intersections when it when it when it means when it comes to black life um and so that's something that you can expect for next week i'm going to get to my guest here in a few minutes uh because you're going to want to have this conversation you're going to want to hear this you're going to get right to uh uh good the, the fam rosa um but i think it's important uh to just kind of take some time and I really wanted to do it right. And I'm still actually getting some recordings from people who I, you know, sent out texts and emails and was just like, hey, would you mind just, you know, sharing, you know, five, six, seven minutes of what you thought um, of this verdict? What was going on for you uh, as this trial happened? And I wanted to just kind of just select the the uh, the multitude, if you will. So, um, yeah, that's what's coming up next week. And I just, you know, and I want to recognize that, you know, there is there's a lot there's a lot. And I'm just one guy doing a podcast. I'm not a news agency. Uh, but again, I want to connect with certain things that are within our culture and within our um, within our realm that that affect us. This stuff affects us. Um, even if you think it doesn't, it affects you, man. Um, and, you know, for me, I know just I had to Ooh, you know, I had to like do my breathing. I had to, you know, watch my pulse. I was trying to listen to my body, you know, just as that verdict, like even when the news started breaking saying, you know, the jury has reached a, a verdict. I was like, oh man. Um, and, you know, and that all the things get brought up, right? Um, Watts uprisings, uh, the Chicago riots, the uh, uh, 1992 uprisings, the, you know, all those things get brought up, you know, um, Ferguson, uh, as we think about, right, um, just the, you know, the what, what justice means uh, in this country uh, and really how religion, you know, p- continues to play a role. There are still people who say, well, you know, uh, George shouldn't have been there or, you know, look what he was doing. Right. And, you know, and, and do that all in the name of God or, 
even worse, try to take a centrist position and say, oh, well, we don't get involved with that. And, and you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that, that, we're just going to leave that, you know, to God and we're going to, we're going to allow that to be, you know, that's, you know, and I say that's worse because you're really siding with the oppressor on that, you know, whether you realize it or not. And, you know, I have some associates who are doing that and, um, you know, what can you do? <laughs> What can you do? So I just wanted to give you the heads up, fam. What's coming down the track? And uh, this stuff does definitely does not slip my mind. A, I can't cover everything, but B, I think it's important to just take some time to reflect as well. Um, so with that being said, I am excited. This week I have an amazing host or guest. I wish she was a host. Um, Rosa Alicia Clemente. Um, a lot of you know her. Um, she is a black Puerto Rican, which I love, right? We're both Blacksican, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I love that we can connect with that. Uh, she was raised in the Bronx in New York. She's an organizer, producer, independent journalist, and scholarly activist. Uh, Rosa was one of the first Afro-Latina women uh, to run for vice president, y'all, of the United States in 2008 for the Green Party ticket. She and her running mate, Cynthia McKinney, were to this date the only women of color ticket in American presidential history. <laughs> Check that out, okay? Um, she's a frequent guest on television, radio, and online media as her opinions on critical current events are widely sought after. I was so thankful uh, that she responded to my email and we finally got a date on the calendar. She had just, uh, I, I give it to her. She, I, I was like, look, we can reschedule. She had just gotten her second dose which I hear just takes people out. In fact, if you listen to this in real time, I'm actually getting mine tomorrow, my second dose uh, for the vaccine. Uh, so I'm just kind of planning nothing after that. But she was like, oh, you know what? No, no, no. She was saying that she was doing the, the tooth. That's right. I remember there was another guest I had on and they were still going to do the interview. Even at the second goes, Rosa had just gotten back from the dentist. That's right. And she was just like, you know, the painkillers are working, but let, you know, let's, 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 let's have this convo. So I appreciate her hanging in there. Definitely, she did not have to, so I appreciated that. Um, Rosa is the president of Know Thyself Productions. She has produced several major community activism tours over the last 20 years as a co-founder and national coordinator of the first ever national hip-hop political conference uh, or convention, really, back in 2003. She brought, uh, helped bring together more than 3,000 activists to create and implement on a national political agenda um, for the hip-hop generation. She has also co-founded the Reach Hip Hop Coalition, a hip-hop generation-based media justice organization she's also working on her phd right now she's gonna get into that she also had a hand in uh judas um the black messiah she's gonna talk about that as well um she, you know she had a she's no stranger to high profile celebrities she had a 2001 critique calling out russell simmons for his misogyny uh 2013 and by, and by the way that 2001 this was long before me too and all these other movements this was long before these people this is when people still thought right russell simmons was like god um so she's she's been in the mix for a long time in 2013 she conf uh, confronted uh rapper rick ross's rape culture lyrics and called upon men in the industry to stand with women and in rape, rape culture and hip hop, uh, you know, in the, in the hip hop culture. She is about it, about it. And uh, again, uh, just a um, uh, a liked cousin, I would say, a fam person, uh, being uh, Blacksican. Um, and just we, I just was vibing with her and I was just thankful uh, that she was able to come on the show. She's currently uh, completing her PhD at the W.E. Du Bois Center for Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And, um, 
yeah, she's going to throw down. She's This is a great conversation. Just thankful to finally have her uh, on the show. So enjoy this conversation. And again, keep seeking uh, deeper truths. Uh, continue to press forward on things, even when media says they've passed or they're outdated. Um, you know, because, you know, George Floyd is definitely not outdated. Trayvon Martin's not outdated. Mike Brown isn't. The list goes on, right? Um, so I leave you with that. Take care of yourselves. Check this conversation out. Folks, I got with me a great guest uh, today. Uh, amazing, uh, just thinker and activist, Rosa Clemente. So much, so glad to have you uh, on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, well, I mean, for the audience to get to know you, because there's so much to cover and what's going on right now, um, stuff, you know, out in the Twin Cities, just the stuff in general, um, because you I mean, you had a presidential run, you've, you've written some amazing pieces, but what's been happening from birth to now? What has, what has made Rosa Rosa? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, of course, my my family, uh, my mom and dad. I I have a huge family. I'm fifteen. Um, wow. Aunts and uncles on my mom's side. Well, now fourteen. One pass. I mean, it's kind of crazy too because I have so many, and they're all still here. Like from, I guess, forty to ninety-five. So I always grew up in a big family. Always, my parents were. Obviously, I, I didn't really even speak English until I was uh, six years old. So I was born and raised in the Bronx okay. as a Puerto Rican, mad family, uh, always visiting people. My mom was really adventurous, so she was always taking us somewhere. And um, I mean, that's obviously like the beginnings and, and, and things that were instilled in me. But it was really going to college and being, you're going to hear the, the sanitation truck is oh, coming. It's all good. It's about to move fast. <laughs> They're out, about to move already. Yeah, it wasn't until I went to college in 1990 at the State University of New York at Albany, and it was like even a year there. When I came back as a sophomore, I just um, joined some student organizations. I joined the Albany State University Black Alliance. I was part of Fuerza Latina, the like overall at that time encompassing, uh, they were still using the word Hispanic then, but a predominantly white campus, but a public university It's the SUNY system. So it's one of the big four. Um, and really once I joined the SUBA and started reading the history of, of just everything about black people here in, in the United States, abroad, what it meant to understand I was a person of African descent, started really learning about Puerto Rico. Cause even though I grew up super proud to be Puerto Rican and it was like, that's our culture. I just didn't know a lot of things um, historically. Mm. Like, I don't even think I realized like, I don't think my mom and dad ever were like, oh, by the way, the reason we're United States citizens when other people who look like us are not, that, like, I didn't even know we were a colony. Like, I just didn't know that kind of stuff. And then when I, um, yeah, that second year, soon it just, like, changed my life. I, I became really involved. 
Um, before then, I was like a little introverted, more like I was nerdy, like even in high school, in a weird way. Okay. Um, yeah, and so it just joining, finding out everything I, I knew about myself, being exposed, getting angry, like really understanding white supremacy and all that. But the biggest factor for me that made me um, at that moment be like, wait, there is something very wrong in America was when the four officers that that got acquitted of the Rodney King yeah. um, beating Rodney King and then the L.A. rebellion, like I was I had just been elected to be president of the Black Student Union like L.A. was burning. Mm. And I remember being called to campus and with all the student leaders and the president didn't even want us to talk about it. We were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. But that was <laughs> that was the first time where I was like, oh, OK. Everything that my older mentor peers, the graduate students, everything I was hearing other speakers come to campus to speak about, I was like, right, this is it. So after that, I've just been in movement spaces for almost 30 years and organizing in a lot of different uh, spaces, but mostly definitely around um, police brutality, um, Puerto Rico being independent and the freedom of, of Puerto Rican Black Panthers and others that uh, are incarcerated for, for their political beliefs and really began my work within political prisoners and prisoners of war because at that time when I graduated, I graduated from SUNY Albany in 95, I went to Cornell, <coughs> excuse me, and got my master's in the Africana Studies Department and then I moved to um, back to Albany mm-hmm. and eventually re- went back to, well, went to New York City to become um, a teacher. I was teaching middle school um, in Brooklyn. And then I, I had already met Lumumba Bandelli, but met other people who had just started the Malcolm X grassroots movement. So the Malcolm X grassroots movement was, is my political home. That's the organization that I've been with since 2000. Not always an active member, but the thing about Malcolm X grassroots movement is like it's family because we just have a different way of even how people join the organization for safety reasons. That actually is one of the reasons why we're all still together as comrades, even if we have political disagreements. Obviously, not everybody gets along, but for the most part, um, and I'll stop here, but for the most part, you know, it was crazy because they're, they're, um, is all this stuff going on in in move in the younger movement and younger leaders? And I was talking to folks from MXG, and I'm like, you know, no matter what ever went down, we were like able to always be honest with each other. Mm. We're family for life. Even if somebody's not speaking anymore, something goes down, we all come together. And I kind of feel bad for younger generations because they probably will never have that type of experience. But like basically, you mess with somebody at MXG, you mess with everybody up in there. <laughs> and, and, and part of it is also the political ideology that we have. And lastly, a, another part of it is we were never, we never ever were a nonprofit, and we made that purposeful. We're yeah. like we're not going into this nonprofit industrial complex. 
What and, and so oh my gosh, this, well this is good. I the April 29th is a big signifier for myself. I mean, I was in LA and and participated in the uprisings in on April 29th. I you know still remember hearing the. I remember sitting in my English class. It was fourth period, right when they had like you know the the closed circuit television, right, and uh, they you know they they were announcing it, and the teacher wanted to be like you know current events and everything, and I just I just remember leaving the classroom and the teacher was like no no y'all just stay here stay here let's be calm i was like oh hell no nah, man so i mean in thinking about that i think about that moment just in not only in my life but just you know in a lot of different people's lives what what are some significant changes like what do people not know about the fight the struggle for equity equality um the issues that 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 we're facing i mean because you ran for president what was it 2000 in the green party correct 2008 2000 yeah what what was that like i'm just so curious i mean because what what how did how did that even come together because i think the presidency is like so far out of reach for people but like you you made a, a real live run for this thing yeah, the first part of the question about like <clears throat> what what is something I would want younger folks to know. Everything's not public consumption. Every fight that you're invited to, you don't need to attend. And sometimes just be quiet. Mm. And 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 I, I say this to 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 anybody that I have um mentored or I'm like that person that they could speak to uh I always am like listen all of us have to admit we have an ego people like us don't do what we do without knowing that like yo I can rock that crowd I can make that crowd go over here over there I can calm the crowd I can be part of rallying up the crowd and all of that mm-hmm. and part of that is is ego and, you know, when I tell people that they're like, you sound like a psychologist, I was like, actually, I should have been a psychologist. Mm. I learned a lot through um, black psychology and, and having mentors that are black psychologists or black social workers. Um, but also I took a class on rhetoric. And one of the things that they said about that is that people want charisma. And some people have and some people don't. Yeah. Some like you gotta like be like, yo, I am so dope at what I do. Like nobody could make that speech better than me. And then you have to be like, you know, check that and don't try to live your life through like rewards or awards or affirm affirmations, acclamations. That's what I would tell this younger generation because we're seeing so many things happen now. Um, that actually give the system like in a little bit of an end to disrupt um, the goal you're you're trying to achieve, and then running for vice president. And the thing is, it was uh, it happened so randomly and so quickly that I I know I did it because <laughs> I know I was there. Um, <laughs> it went by really really quickly and it wasn't until really recently that i was able to begin to process it i save everything so i have um i think eight boxes full of green party stuff and one of the things that uh, maybe three or four years ago that made me be like whoa Mm. this was really like big was that every from the smallest village to the biggest city, 
when you're running for a federal office like that, every board of elections sends you what you're going to look like on the ballot. So okay. I have like 400 unopened board of election letters from all over the country. And I open them like, oh, this is what it looked like if you voted in wherever New Hampshire. Oh, this is what it looked like if you voted in Houston, Texas. And I just kept opening and I was like, oh yeah, we did that. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's 400 cause we're not in every state, obviously. Uh, so it happened really fast. Most people that I thought would have my back completely didn't and also told me I was making the worst mistake of my life, Damn. including mentors and what I call now former comrades. Everybody was like, nobody in our generation is looking for even dealing with electoral politics. Like now, unfortunately, that's all we deal with. And yeah, not too many people that I thought would have my back had my back. And then the people that I never would have thought have my back did. So it was also for me after like a, a couple years of like really deep depression, like realizing like, you know, I see you saying all this stuff and you can even, you know, support me. And then finding out that some of my real dear friends didn't vote for me didn't help, you know, so. Damn. I, yeah, at that moment I was just living in a, I was just like angry. I was, uh, nobody was trying to hire me or Cynthia. I was basically, like living with my sister. I have my daughter. I couldn't pay rent. My husband was struggling. It was crazy. And I just stayed in this space for a couple of years of just being so pissed off and so angry and being like, what am I going to do next? Like nobody's trying to hire me. And that's when I decided I'll just apply for my PhD. And the reason I decided that was because my, my mentor, um, Dr. James Turner was mm. so Africana studies at Cornell University is the second black studies department on the on the East Coast. It's the best one. People often say Harvard, but Africana to, to me is still the number one where it's like you want to go get Africana black studies. You go to uh, Cornell. Now they have a Ph.D. program. But UMass Amherst is one of the few Ph. It's the first Black Studies Department to grant PhDs. So everybody who was in there were all elders from the struggle, like Ernie Allen, who was there when the 10 point, the Panthers wrote the 10 point program. Um, Dr. John Bracey, who is known all over the country and was a kick-ass label organizer, Marxist. Then you got Bill Strickland, the country still foremost black um, um, political science teacher, Professor Jimu, the leading black literary professor in the country, and then Dr. Shabazz, who has a relationship mm. with the Malcolm X grassroots movement, but with the new uh, Republic of Africa. And he just called me out the blue and was like, listen, I know you're not doing well. Come to Am Amherst, get your PhD, get away from all of this. And I was like, I'm out. And I was there um, until the, I got admitted and, and finishing up there now. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, and I love that history because I think there's a sense, you know, that in, in one of the things I think that, you know, social media and places do. I mean, it's, it, it is a great place for just in terms of, you know, getting news and, 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 and about what's, you know, what's happening and everything and, and staying connected. But there's also that sense, right, of, of 
you know, all I, you know, all I want is the fame or just the, you know, kind of the accolades. And, you know, I think it's, it's oftentimes very easy, particularly for white allies, right. To just post something and think, okay, well, that's the extent of the work. Um, let me ask you this. And since, you know, obviously, you know, the politics, go ahead. Let me just say that yeah. real quick. See, and that's, that's another thing with, with younger folks. I'm like, don't ever disrespect me and ask me for my receipts. We're so lucky we didn't have mm. social media mm. in our time. So I'm like, I was like, do you actually think you're the first person to ever say that police are corrupt and should be abolished? I'm like, <laughs> like, like, because for them, if it's not the last decade on social media, it doesn't exist. And that's why part of me as a historian, I, I archive everything. So I got... Everybody who knows me, I'm like, I got pictures of you from 1995. We got Black August. I got all the archives. Because part of me was always like, I never want to forget this. Plus, I actually do like doing that stuff. Yeah. You know? So anytime, like, somebody needs something, they'll be like, yo, Rosa was there. She probably has a picture or something. They were right. <laughs> but when I look through stuff and I see other of my contemporaries, and then sometimes I'll hear... Um, younger organizers, you know, diss them because they said something 15 years ago that they just found out about. I'm like, yo, I don't even know how y'all are maintaining because at the end, all that that does is it's just it breaks you mentally at one point, mm -hmm. which speaks to why, you know, a lot of the younger iteration of different movements just implicitly don't have trust in each other. They don't. Uh, study the history of like this is how it's always been and and third that again if you're like always seeking to be affirmed especially by white people you won't make it do this yeah yeah that's the truth i think that's um i think that at least for me uh, was you know kind of one of the hard reckonings i think you know of the 2016 election you know, for a lot of the work that I do and have done is, you know, was trying to, at, at least up until that point, um, was trying to help educate, you know, white spaces, especially in religious settings, um, to better understand race and everything. I think, you know, the, the 2016 election really, you know, opened that wide open. I'd be curious to know, along with that, you know, what what were your thoughts on the 2016 election and, and then, the you know, the four years that have preceded? And then I'd also love to hear your thoughts on where we're currently at in the Biden administration? Uh, I was I was one of the people along with my comrade Kali Okuno that were like, yeah, Trump's going to win. Where people are like, you are insane. That's never going to happen. I'm like, yeah, he's going to win. And <laughs> part of that was um, growing up in New York City and always knowing who Donald Trump was. Yeah. Understanding now that if we had the death penalty, the brothers um, in Central Park Five would have been executed. Uh, going up in the Bronx when like it was burning and it didn't ever seem to me like the Bronx was not beautiful. Like it was the people, the community, my cousins taking me as hip hop begins, like all all, all mm. of that stuff. So I, when I recently, after I did my pre-doctoral fellowship in LA, and that's when I had also um, gotten down with Black Lives Matter LA and, mm -hmm. and with 
and Abdul and so many people. When we came back, we decided to move back to Albany because just Bronx at that point, it was just getting too gentrified. And I was like, I can't live in these type of crowded conditions anymore. So when we came up here, there's Trump signs all over. And plus, I got stupid family that voted for Trump and told me so, or they were supporting him. So, but being in upstate New York, I was like, it's so funny because mad people from New York City would be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, first of all, there's upstate New York. New York City is part of a state. Second, I've gone to school. All my, uh, Albany and Cornell are in upstate New York. I, I worked in Albany in the government. I lived in Albany. And coming back up here, me seeing a Confederate flag on somebody's truck at the mall wasn't like a big deal. Mm. I was like, oh, God, fine. We're back in Albany. All right. You know, and um, here the, the Proud Boys had started a chapter then. And so we were already beginning wow. to deal with that. And I helped, I helped start the BLM chapter here that a lot of young people ran and took over. And then there's another dope organization here, Youth FX. But it's funny because the day after the election, like we were upset, of course, here, and the kids were upset, but we kind of were like, makes sense, America, you know, where everybody else was like, hysterical like how did this happen and i'm like have you been paying attention right. like did y'all think hillary was really gonna win like i was just like i don't understand how you didn't know this you know i i didn't and i i think what was more shocking from that administration was the veracity of how they went to destroy everything and the weakness of the democratic party as yeah. usual you know, so it was like, oh, in all of this, and obviously then we dealt with so much uh, in movement spaces, immigrant, police killings, then Hurricane Maria, and definitely after Hurricane Maria, I'm like, every Puerto Rican was like, oh, yeah, like basically F the United States now, because dude threw paper towels at us. Oh, my God. Way, it made everybody in Puerto Rico rely on us. Like we could do it. So, you know, I, I have a different lens. I see that through. Yeah. And the 2020 election, it, it was the first time I ever endorsed a Democrat. I endorsed Julian Castro at, at first mm-hmm. because he was the only one that from the beginning was like unequivocally, it's not even that Black Lives Matter, is that the police have to stop killing black people. And I was like, all right. And I started reading his policies around housing. Then I met him and I was like, all right. He didn't get the nomination. And then so many other people from other spaces were, you know, like, can you get down with Bernie? I really struggled with it at the beginning. I was like, I still vote green. Okay. I was... Um, had, had already left the Green Party after the 2016 election. Just the Green Party is just a shell of what it used to be. And so many, um, so many acts of racism and misogyny from particularly the white men in the Green Party. But so I, I did endorse Bernie. I still voted for Howie Hawkins here in New York because uh, ultimately I was like, I want nothing to do with Trump winning. New York is a safe state. Okay. You know, Biden and Harris are going to win it. It's even though there's, it's Trump territory up here. Hmm. So, I mean, I think the same thing. Like, you know, 
people expect that there's going to be some revolutionary change from the federal government, the, the elect, you know, the president, their vice president, and it's not. And yesterday, it, I'm glad we're doing this now, because yesterday he's Biden said he thinks they should continue with building the wall because it will be part of the infrastructure and give jobs. I heard about, yes, I heard about that. Ilhan Omar put out the statement first and it's like, of course, <laughs> look at what you're doing at the border right now. Like, of course, now you're going to find a way to make the Republicans a little bit happy, even though you don't have to. Of course, you're going to say stop looting. Of course, you're going to have Harris come out and say there's a difference between protests and looting. <laughs> so to me, I'm oh, like, yeah. oh, Obama, two and a half point whatever what i will say though can't i'm gonna give them all their props on on the COVID vaccine right now mm -hmm. i mean honestly where we were to where we are now where some states like new york are, are doing it right like everybody now gets vaccinated unfortunately now we're going back to the variants and that just really is about americans are so arrogant and so don't have a collective mindset of safety that it's like all of us doing the right thing and then is it is like when you're when you're with your your peoples back in the day and and everybody was we push the edge on some things, but there'd be that extra dude. And he was like, every time you F it up, you know, it's like <laughs> every time we're getting closer to maybe whatever that looks like, that could be herd immunity, Florida, Michigan, y'all are stupid. Like y'all not doing your thing is affecting us. But I do acknowledge that, especially in light that African-American Latinos and the Native American community were being and are still the ones predominantly dying, but being decimated, or elders are being decimated. Mm -hmm. you know? And and whoever's really running that, like get this vaccine out, shows you what government can do when it works right. But this is even far and few between the other issues that our people are dealing with them now. And also, I I, I really was tight when Biden just didn't be like, we're voting on this bill right now and getting people money right now. Like you didn't need Republicans with you and you never do. And I don't like that. Cause it's like, what's the point of winning if you're worried about what one Democrat can hold it up? No, he can't, not if Kamala votes, then it's a, then it's a tie. So, or, or she'll break the tie. So I, I'm sick and tired of them talking about they wanna work with the Democrats, honestly, you right. know? So those are a lot of things that I'm just like, you know, thinking, writing about um, and trying to understand. Absolutely. Well, and I oh, man, this is this is deep. I, I love this conversation because I think that there's so much I feel like and I will definitely say, you know, uh, with the vaccines. I mean, I go for my second one here in, in a couple weeks. Um you know, I will say, you know, at least I mean, I'm in Chicago. And so, you know, we got Pritzker as our governor. Um, so he's trying to like open up, you know, like I think they just made an announcement yesterday that they're going to be opening up everything. Like if you're 16 or older, you can get a vaccine, um, yeah. which, I, you know, it, 
it's interesting just to see just kind of how that stuff is being spread. I know at the initial onset when these these um, vaccines first started coming out, right, you hear of these stories, right, of very privileged people, people who have a lot of money, who are showing up in line trying to act like they, you know, that they were in, you know, in some of those spaces and whatnot. Um, but at, well, let me ask you this on the heels of yet another black man being killed, you know, by the hands of police. Um, and I wasn't sure at first, was this a woman was not, I think they've identified her as a, as a woman, correct? Yeah. That's yeah. It's a white yeah. woman who was like 20 years service. And, you know, and then they, we, we got this sorry ass excuse again that, oh, I thought I was re reaching for my taser. Uh, yeah. so I, cause people ask me, I have gotten the vaccine. Me and my husband, we got the second dose about three weeks ago. Okay. My daughter got her first dose. Um, and, you know, definitely having, like, brothers and sisters who come out of, like, New York City in the, in the 80s when, when a lot of what was going on with AIDS, there was all this, um, even books written about how, like, AIDS was started um, to specifically kill African-Americans, right? So I, I, I didn't buy it into that kind of conspiracy stuff because I... I I'm like, that's not science. But having a lot of friends in, in that generation, you know, there's been a lot of friends that are like, oh, Rosa, you're like, you know, you're sheep now. You're following everybody. Don't you know that it's starting a lab to kill our people? I'm like, and if it did, I don't care where it started. The fact is, it, it is killing our people. Right. Like, okay, so yeah, it was a conspiracy to get rid of every black man. And that's happening. So we, unfortunately have to now be vaccinated and, you know and then it, I realized I was telling my husband the other day I said wait a minute I am definitely that person I'm like do not come around me if you don't have it the vaccine no I'm not, I don't care how many times you ask me to come see you okay I'm a sheep to the slaughter I'm group think whatever I was like I'm not trying to hang out with nobody that doesn't have it yeah. realizing that I might not see some of my friends because they're not going to have the vaccine. Yeah. And they're not going to take it. And you know what? That is their absolute right. And our absolute right for those of us is who have taken it. Then we d did. And I cannot be around you. I'm not trying to die from this. So, you know, because I think our generation, you probably, you've seen it, right? Like, you're like, dude, listen to the science. I hear you. I feel you. But this could mean I might not be seeing some people right. ever. You right. know, which like, oh, all right, but I'm making the the best decision for my health, my family's health, and other people that I don't want to see die over some virus. And then lastly, understanding we're going to be in these pandemics all the time. Now, this is it. Like, all the science has been, talk, been talking about this. I've been reading this book by Laurie Garrett. It's pretty intense, and it's called The Coming Plague. And she she's mm. like, basically, these things are already happening in other countries. They've actually figured out better ways right not to to um be spreading this or new variants because when they deal especially on the continent of africa they shut it down and yes it doesn't finge on what we as americans think are civil rights but what i see more on the continent of africa is everyone in the community being like if we need to stay home we are going to stay home for our people here in yeah. America, I can't not, I can't go to a concert. I can't go drink at a bar. You're like, you sound fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and you're an idiot. 
uh, with the with the well, look what happened. I was just telling this story. I just did an interview before this. This Friday, my um, family came to see me. I've seen my mom, my sister, my aunt on different times all together. My sister lives in North Carolina, and this is the first time I've been able to see my niece and nephew um, for about a year and a half. And uh, they've grown up and and gotten taller, and usually my... um, uh, my nephew, my nephew, not my niece, is is more quiet. Like he's super observant and that. And we were just talking and kicking and stuff. And I saw him running outside, you know. And everybody in the hood, like where we live, is out. People washing their cars, all of this. And I was like, oh man, summer's here. This is so dope. And I'm watching him. And then I said, damn, this is how Tamir Rice looked, mm. like. Oh man, like it hit me like, oh, and I was like, come back down here. And it wasn't even like police were out. I was just like, it's a stupid white guy down the street did that has a Trump flag going to be that dumb person. I was like, there's kids in my neighbor, like on my sidewalk. And I was like, come back this way, come down. And when they were leaving, I just really hugged them like super, super long. And I told Justice that night, I said, damn, dude we are never going to be able not to worry. Like, these police are trigger happy. I don't know if this dude's going to get convicted. We live in Albany where there is so much police brutality. Like, it's so much that people are just, like, used to it being part of their daily life in this city that's not that big. And then I wake up, and then Sunday, and I'm like, what? I was like... 10 miles away from where the trial is. I was just like, yo, America's trash. This shit's a dumpster. Like, let it burn. In that way, let every system fall. And then when I really heard it, and, you know, when we started finding out, y'all pulled him over for an air freshener. And what I saw (laughs) immediately, the conversation, even from progressives, began to be like, um, the the air freshener and the actual act. I'm like, the whole point is they didn't pull him over over an air freshener. They pulled him over because he was young, black, and his mom had just bought him a nice new car. I was like, how are we falling into the narrative about an air freshener? Right. And then it wasn't until I, I where you were like, I think she's white. Because I didn't see all three of them. I didn't see her. She was in the back while the other two were at the side. Mm-hmm. And then we come to find out late last night, you've been on the job 26 years and you do the training and we're supposed to believe that bullshit? Right. <laughs> right. You train the other police. But I think when we started talking yesterday, I had start to watch the press conference. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was telling somebody. I was like, see, black Democratic mayor, black Democratic city manager, white police chief, black mayor's like, we feel your pain. City manager's like, I am not going to put her name out, even though I could. In fact, the city manager is the one that could have fired her right then. Police chief gets so tight with the questions, he bounces. And I'm like, who's in charge here? 
the mayor, the city manager, or the, the, the police unions. And I was like, this right here, if it doesn't make people realize, it does not matter who we put into office if they're going to be the ones siding with white supremacy. Then finding that out. And then before I, about her being a 26-year veteran on the force, then as I go, I'm about to go to sleep, my homie in Minneapolis was like, yo, they just shut all the lights in the city down. We can't see nothing. Right. So yes. Why? Because the police were behind a 10 foot fence. Nobody, they didn't have to leave behind the fence. They chose to come out. And the mayor is the one that then took over and told the police to leave and get in, in the streets and turn all the lights off. I was like, yeah. If people don't know right now that when we say abolish it all or like how they said in Ferguson, the whole damn system is right. guilty. Right. If we can't make the connection that seven years ago in August, Mike Brown's body laid there and they did the same thing with Dante Wright, where his mom and his family were watching him lay there and couldn't get to him. I was like, yo, they are ratcheting up on this, on Asian hate, on building the wall, because these white supremacists are becoming clearer and clearer that they're going to be outnumbered just on a people sense and also, it's like the Game of Thrones. It's like the last dragon. If anybody watched it, of course. <laughs> that last episode before the, the series finale is one of the dragons died. And I'm like, that's how I see all these white old people, men, women, non-binary, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, all the, all the names. I'm like, they are right now like, if we don't keep power now, we don't have it or they're preparing to rule a majority people of color country within a minority rule that also privileges obviously the trillionaires and billionaires of this country who as usual have nothing to say now but last year everything y'all did was about black lives matter right those connections and that's what i'm more like frustrated with like we're not having the deep political conscious raising things and we're not looking to do something different. Like you want another civilian review board? How many cities have that? You want better training? She was trained for 26 years. Right. Stop it. I'm done. I'm tired of this. You know, I woke up like I'm tired of this shit. And I also woke up yesterday having very low tolerance for white people. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even want to go get food because I really don't even want to see a white person right now. Honestly, I'm like, I don't want to see y'all. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. That's real. I mean, well, so let me ask you this, because this is and this has come up, at least in a lot of my circles, especially with, uh, you know, the Biden administration making, you know, moves, you know, to ban certain guns and whatnot. I bet I'd, I'd be curious. Just, you know, I've I've heard on one side of the fence. It's like, right. A cat. I'm forgetting this cat's name. He's on Instagram as well, but he talks about you know how all gun laws are racist. You know he's African American. You know brother himself. And he yeah, talks no, about how. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know how he you know how everyone you know should arm themselves. And I I'm I'm curious like what what that looks like. And you know, do guns play a role in us moving forward? What what does you know what what does the future look like in the next ten years? I think about. 
For example, I think about how NASA can spend millions of dollars for the, the preciseness of a robot to land on another planet. But we still don't have money for some of these schools. It's like I've been in education for 22 years and stuff. And so we 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 still don't have you know, we're still struggling over, you know, <laughs> you know, some of these teachers who got to buy all their own materials. But we but and, you know, and these are all, you know, in the public schools. So I'm just like, wait a minute. So I'd be curious, like as you're thinking about the next decade, um, you know, and we're starting this decade off with with a bang, with a pandemic that, you yeah. know, that's still roaring. Right. Numbers are still going up. And the, my our neighbor, you know, state Michigan, they're, you know, <laughs> considering shutting shit down. Right. So, yeah. again. <laughs> no, I, I, I completely believe in people's right to arm themselves and self-defense as uh, Robert Will and Mabel Williams taught us, like, you know, and I'm not even down south, but I'm in upstate New York. Everybody out here, it, it has some, some kind of gun. And at this point, there are more guns in this country than there are people. Right. Like, you know, so that when all this Republicans and people, oh, they're trying to take away our guns. I'm like, they don't even have enough people to do that. You know, but I, I do believe in our communities and that should not be going off. Sorry. I do okay. believe in our communities that we have also because of how gun violence has disproportionately um, impact our communities. Um, one of the many myths, right, was always like um, no guns and black people will stop killing black people. Not understanding that the way crime works in general is that you you don't you uh crime in general happens inter-ethnically within your your community right so it's like yes just like white people who have guns kill um white people who have guns they kill other white people you know and nobody wants to talk about that so we grew up in a time where if you said anything positive about self-defense that had to do with arming yourselves you know you were uh not understanding gun violence in our communities, right? And now we're in this place where, I mean, yesterday it wasn't a mass shooting, but there was another school shooting. But the thing is that we have to now preface that, oh, it's just another shooting. Oh, this time only two people died as opposed to 45 people, you know? So younger, younger, so for me, I believe in the, in the Second Amendment in, in that way. You know, and then I just understand that we now live in a society that is too late to do what they should have done with Australia. Uh, there was a mass shooting in Australia in the early 80s. They banned guns for the most part. Mm -hmm. They've never had a mass shooting since. Right. So you know, this is where we're at. There's going to continue to be mass shootings. Um, it's not now even about our brothers and sisters and um, non-binary folks being pulled over because they're black. They're pu being pulled over regardless, let alone we saw what happened with the brothers that did have guns that were licensed. Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, Philando Castile, you know, so uh, around that. And then for what the larger uh, question around education, you know, these cities are paying out multi, multi, multi million dollar civil suits. So the families won't seek uh, 
they rather settle the civil suit and not go, uh, civil suit and not go to trial. So, but people need to understand these dollar amounts. First, any family that wants to sue, go ahead, get any everything you want. But what these city councils are doing, or these, you know, the controllers of these cities, or the governors and and and, and mayors and of state governors of state mayors of all that, are like, well, we don't have enough money now, right? Because you're you're spending sixty million dollars in some cities a year to settle law, civil lawsuits, as opposed to firing ten cops whose salary might all add up to two million. Mm-hmm. Because once the city starts firing the cops, then they think, oh, we're going to lose control. Crime's going to go up. No, what you're going to have, as long as there's policing, is police knowing that if you do this, you're going to be immediately fired. L.A. last year spent $87 million on civil lawsuits. The $47 million to Breonna Taylor's family, the the $27 million to George Floyd's family, right? Again, they should get all of that. What these elected officials start to use is then say, now we don't have money, so we can't fund schools. And how could we ever give teacher raises? Like, if we give raises, we'll be bankrupt. If we deal with houselessness, we'll be bankrupt. No, you're being bankrupt because y'all are, suing, are 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 paying out these settlements as opposed to holding these police officials accountable so these killings will stop. And then we as a community, we our resources, we they get taken from us and then we're left with this little bit of resources that usually is more encouraging communities that should be working together to go against each other because there's not enough money to go around. Or like living here in Albany, New York, it's very small, but we only have one high school. That's over mm-hmm. like 600 kids. Um, finally, it got a new, new building built. But here in the city of Albany, we have not one youth program. There's only one, excuse me. It's called Youth FX, a media program. My daughter's part of it. That is the only program in the city of Albany that is open for kids that are over 14. So here in Albany, we have the boys club, the YMCA, but they cut it off at 13. So, and they do no teen or young adult anything. So all that happens as the warmer gets in Albany, kids are just straight hanging out because they have not one program to go to. They don't have a building to go to. They shut down the basketball court. They shut down the pool last summer. And then they wonder, you know, why young people are getting caught up in situations because there's really nowhere to go for them. And also you completely denied a community all of the revenue that it should have to make it a good community that works for everybody. And they always blame it on not having enough money. Mm. Mm. This is deep. I've, I love, I love the education here. I mean, I think that, right. I mean that, right. It does boil down to that, you know, this, this money, you know, that, that comes in. Let me ask you this, and I definitely want to want to if we get if we get some time, we haven't even gotten to Judas and, and Black Messiah. But um, what what's that? 
I said I'll keep my answers shorter. Yeah. No, 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 no. This is good. You, you, you do you. But I'm, I'm curious. Just what do you think the role? Uh, religion has played in in all of this, right? When you think about, you know, what is it, eighty some odd percent um, of white evangelicals, you know, who voted for Trump, you know, and just not only that, but you know, also religion, the role religion has played in in black and brown communities, um, you know, in regards to just how we see things, outlook. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd be very interested just to, to kind of you know hear your thoughts on that as well. And again, you know, you do you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't practice any religion. I was, I was raised Catholic and once um, my mom gave me the choice to go or not, I, I, the only time I went is um, when people in my family died since they're all Catholic. So I, I don't go to church. I don't um, subscribe to any religion at all. Uh, but I, I do understand like religion has been either the place for, Black liberation and freedom, especially during the times of enslavement, Jim Crow, civil rights, definitely the hubs of organizing in, in but I, specifically the Black church and as hubs of organizing, uh, definitely seeing in, in younger folks that they have really no ties to many religion, uh, religion at all. The most I see younger folks um, is uh, those that pra are Muslim and practice their faith. But like, I'm not seeing a lot of like young people like, oh, I'm Catholic, I'm going in, you know, all of this, or I'm even even Jewish young people, you know? So I don't, I think for the black community, the church will always play a role. I do think maybe what's been happening is you've seen some more progressiveness mm -hmm. coming out of it because of younger people who are religious particularly African-American, black, younger people. Uh, the way the evangelicals, I mean, like, to me, they're just, I'm like, Trump is not even in a religion. He's like the devil, for real, <laughs> incarnate. Yeah. But on top of that, he was, he's, not a, he's, he's not a religious person. He just rolled with everybody else around him who was that, you know, to get that whole white e evangelical uh, vote. So I don't think they play as much of an important part as they used to play. Okay. Okay. What, uh, and what, and, 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 in what regards do you, you think they, they, they don't play in terms of like, who doesn't play the white evangelicals don't play an important role? Yeah. I mean, for, for white evangelicals and, and, and then definitely some old school, like black, religious folks, especially like Pentecostal, um, they're always more focused on what they, you know, what they would call the culture wars. Like, we don't believe that there are trans people. Men don't marry men. They marry women, you know, like want to control women's reproductive rights, all of that. Where you now have younger people who, who, who are religious, but they have very clear differences around, quote, the, the cultural war in religion. So my younger family, some of my family members that are Catholic, they believe in a woman's right to choose. You know, um, in, in, a, in what happens, at least I've seen this happen with, in the Catholic community, is the more younger people throw off the, like, cultural war around, especially abortion and LGBTQ, yeah. The one thing the Pope does right is that once he's he is moved there, he makes a statement 
to all of those that practice the Catholic faith. So if my mom and dad, who were never Catholic in that way, they never were about like a woman not having a right to choose, they didn't like it. But I mean, my mom grew up at a time where they're like, you're not even allowed to use birth control. And if my mom hadn't chosen her own way, she would have had mad kids like my abuela did because the reason my abuela had 16 kids is because you it, until the 19th, mid-1960s in the Catholic Church, you could not use birth control if you were married. That was considered a sin. That was considered you breaking one of the sacraments. Mm. You know? But what the Pope has done when he puts out these yearly statements about how, you know, we need to take care more of the climate, that LGBTQ people are our people, even if he's now backtracking around the marriage part, that my mom would reads these edicts and she's like, oh, so for this year, I need to be um, more into what's happening with climate change. Tell me about it. Show me an organization. So that's the interesting to me about the Catholic Church. But I know that e- evangelicals also have those things because I have people in my family that are evangelical. But their whole thing is always, this, they say, the sanctity of life, as long as they can choose whose life is 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 sacred you know so and also we see many many research uh reports that are saying younger people less and less younger people are in tied to any type of institutional religion in this country so their numbers are falling when you see those gatherings there'll be like the tent thing gatherings with the young people but when you see the real huge ones that's mostly all old people over 60, you know? So yeah. that kind of stuff is just going to die out naturally. You know? Right. Well, and I think it's it's fascinating just to kind of just see some of the nuances. I asked that question primarily because, you know, the, the role religion, like you mentioned, you know, plays in, in so much of our communities and, um, you know, just, just in, especially in the decision-making, you know, process and, um, the role that it has had, um, religion, uh, you know, in, in the controlling of bodies, particularly women's bodies, particularly, you know, women of color bodies and stuff. So now I appreciate that. Um, okay. Let me ask this. I mean, you, you had a significant role in the, in, in the creation, um, of Judas and the black Messiah. Can you talk a little bit about that and the film and just the importance and significance of that? Yeah, so about three years ago, um, Brother Shaka King, who's one of the uh, writers and the director, had reached out to me. Me and him are part of a collective called Blackout for Human Rights that Ryan Coogler, Ava DuVernay, and Charles King started about right before, right during um, the, the rebellion in Ferguson. But we really all had all come together to help out with the crisis of water in Flint, Michigan. And they were bringing people in Hollywood that, you know, uh, mostly black folks, and they brought in Pastor Michael McBride. And then Pastor McBride was like, Rosa, we need you at this table. You know, this is the organizers and activists have to be here to guide some of these things that folks want to do. So I have been part of it. So Shaka had hit me up and was just like, by the way, do you have any connection with Fred Hampton Jr.? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm still in contact with him. 
because in 2001, I took him and M1 of Dead Prez on a college tour for about a couple of years. The reason I had gotten, I knew who Chairman Fred was and I knew he was incarcerated when I started to know more about his life. Uh, but it is, uh, it's Matulu from, from Dead Prez that was like breaking it down. He was visiting him, he was working on him um, being released. And he was like, yo, when Fred comes out, do you think you could get him a couple gigs? And that just happened to be the time where I started realizing, oh, wait a minute, like I could speak and this could be part of my work and it could be like my work work. And I started reaching out to like people of my generation, like, yo, don't do anything for free or, or like check this out. Like you'd be a real good speaker for that. So as well as we were all at that time, Brooklyn was just Brooklyn. It was like most deaf and Talib and Jessica Camore, Dream Hampton, Malcolm X grassroots. It's like we were all in these incredible political and cultural spaces. So I got to know Dead Press and kind of started managing um, a little, but definitely rolling with them to as many places and shows. So me and M had already gotten tight. Fred comes out, we do this tour for about a couple years. Years, and I stayed in contact with him. And I, I told Shock, I was like, listen, I'm going to call Fred, but I'm going to tell you right now, mad people have tried to make this movie. Forrest Whitaker tried to make it, Antoine Foucault tried to make it before he passed, um, uh, John Singleton tried to make it, uh, and what's the other brother? Forrest Whitaker and Denzel Washington. I was like, and they said no to all of them, but I was like, I'm going to talk to Fred about it because then that was 2018. So 2019 was coming, which is the 50 year since the assassination of Mark Clark and Fred Hampton. We have begun to get some more PPs out or re-elevate the work around political prisoners. You know, and I was like, we need this movie now. Like this right now, Black Lives Matter, all this, like we need it. So I just kept calling Fred. I kept calling Fred. I kept calling. I was like, Fred, take the meeting. And I was like, it'll be um, Ryan Coogler, his wife and producing partner, Cincy, Charles Kane, like literally the Kane maker. Charles Kane is why we're seeing this massive shift in Hollywood around movies and, and what, what black movies are going to get greenlit and funding. And then Shaka. Um, who I've known of his work as a director for a while and obviously knew, knew him through Blackout. Talked to Ryan, told Ryan and Charles. I'm like, listen, y'all gonna have to just do what I do. I was even like, we're gonna get there and they're gonna be like mad late. So we'll just sit in the car and wait. And they were like, you're right about everything. I was like, I've known Fred long enough, you know? And I said, you're just gonna have to understand this is not gonna be like a one or two hour meeting. It was pretty late and they thought it was three hours. That movie, that meeting lasted eight hours. Wow. Yeah. And just not come with me because I was like, you gotta come to the first meeting. Yo, and but I see, I was prepared. I was like, we ain't living here till the sun breaks. So I'm like, because the number of, of questions and concerns that Fred had, right? That right. he knew other Panthers would have, that Mama, Comrade, who and Jerry would have. You know, and, and then also that Fred himself has been traumatized when he was incarcerated. And obviously always knowing that the state did not actually want your mom and you to survive how a, a Kua survives in a house that got shot 99 times 
and she's next to her partner, Fred, that is assassinated and murdered, and she had not one graze to her, because 25 days later, Fred would be born, the son. Wow. So I've, I, I have to kept, kind of kept telling, I think my role was definitely just to always um, tell Ryan Charles Shaka, like, listen, he's going to call you back. I say, also, you got to understand, Chairman Fred Jr. doesn't do anything without it going through processes. His whole life has been about that. He's only known himself as the son of the Black Panther Chairman Fred Sr. who was assassinated at 21. And he knows at any given time he's being deemed a threat. I was like, so no, he's not going to call you right back. And no, he's not just going to sit in a meeting with you. He's going to tell you, well, now take a walk with me at 3 a.m. in the morning. So we went through about, it, not went through, it was two years of a lot of different types of negotiations. The role I kept playing, which is to be a, a connector, kind of like uh, communicating, playing a role where I was one of if not the only woman at the, you know, major meetings where I would just be like, listen, it's going to happen. And they're like, <laughs> how do you know that? I'm like, I know it. It's just going to, it's a lot. It's going to take a lot. It's going to happen. Uh, filming, principal filming started on October uh, uh, 2019. And the movie was all set for release for August of 2020 mm-hmm. to celebrate Black August as well. And obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. Um, you know, so we had to go through that. So, I mean, I, I I was just like, I'm so happy this is being, movies being made. I know what it's going to mean to our community. I know what it's going to mean to to show it to young people. But I also always understood it wasn't a documentary. It was not a biopic. Shaka was very upfront that William O'Neill would be um, centered. He, he's been very upfront about like, he wanted to make this like The Departed. The movie The Departed. Okay. Um, and Charles was, you know, real clear, like, yo, you know, they're not going to try to greenlit certain things. But at the end, one of the things, the best two things after the movie that came out of it, that first, Fred was on set the, every day. And hmm. people say things, and I'll be like, he was on the set every day. So you, you're like, don't even know what you're talking about. He was on set every day. He wasn't, wow. he didn't give notes. And I'm sure that was a hard process for everybody on the set, right? Because usually, like, when you consult on a film or you get the family to, they really don't want to come on the set. But he was there every day. Um, he, he fought the battles he needed to fight. I was there for three days. I got lucky because the day I was there, the two days, I got to see the, the part where um, Daniel Kalua playing Chairman Fred, gives the speech in the church. And I was there. And this is the thing I'll always remember. I was sitting next to Charles Hmm. and Charles is business, but he he just, he's, you know, he just radiates like love, you know, and we're sitting next to each other and Daniel does the first take and we both looked at each other and started crying. Hmm. First I was like, how the hell does Daniel sound exactly like Fred Hampton? Wow. I began to find out he had a dialect coach to help him with the way Chairman Fred spoke. Because I was like, this is, like, already I'm like, British, how do, don't you have an accent when you do this and then this kind of thing? And then he did it again and again and again. 
they filmed that scene 12 times. Oh, my God. And every time they yell cut, Daniel would just kind of lay back and just breathe. And then like, okay, let's go. I'm ready to do it again. Let's go. I'm ready to do it again. And that church scene also has people in the movie representing the young lords, the 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 um, the disciples, the white feminists, uh, Gloria Steinem, you know, like you see the church scene, um, the white patriots. And that scene is so powerful because that's also the time where um, Chairman Frank came up with the notion of the Rainbow Coalition. And lastly, mm. Chad Menace, who created the Young Lords Party, was also on the set those days with me. And what people forget is that Fred Hampton and Chacha both met, they got caught up and they ended up meeting in Chicago City Jail, whatever. Fred had already become the chairman of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Illinois. Chacha was running with the Young Lords at that moment where they were still street organization and chairman fred was like no yo puerto rican like we're all in this together it's not quote about race it's about capitalism colonial imperialism that made chacha move the street org into the young lord's party so then chacha's on the set and he's emotional and then he tells us a story that night that he's the last one except the people in the apartment to see Fred alive because they were preparing to do a protest for another Puerto Rican brother that had gotten shot. Wow. He said, I said, good night to my comrade. And three days later, I was a pallbearer. And I was like, yo, the ancestors are here. This is what it means when these actors say something took over me. This is what it means to see Fred Hampton scene, a scene of his father knowing how the movie ends. This is Chacha Jimenez, who as for Puerto Ricans, Chacha's our, our, our hero. Mm. Watch this and I'm witnessing this. And I was like, yo, I did not know that this could be like this. And lastly, I found something in me that I want to do in the future now. I do want to produce. I do want to bring more stories. I do want to bring talent. On the flip side, I totally understand people's critiques. And I think those are important critiques. But isn't it crazy that, that, you know, this movie is now out for rent. But when the Oscars come out, the movie will just be available um, for people to see for free. And it's like in this time for this movie to come out, I was like, it was all meant to be in a crazy way. It wouldn't have come out in 2020, wouldn't have had the same impact. And it didn't have, and it had nothing to do with box office receipts. The movie's not in theaters, right? Right. But the accolades and 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 that people don't know this either that Charles, Ryan, and uh, and and Shaka are the first ever all black producing team to be nominated for the um for the Oscar for the movie. Mm. You know, not for sure. People are like, ah, you know, that Hollywood did this, that, and the other. And I'm like, you know, you don't like Ryan and Charles. What Ryan and Charles trying to do in Hollywood ain't what people think. They're on some other level, and it's not just about Hollywood. But to be also like 93 years, and this is the first time, I'll be it all men, but an all-black team, 
And Dan, I'm, I'm going to say, as a pop culture person, mm-hmm. every time Daniel's winning, I'm like dressed up watching like, yes. <laughs> and the next one. Because every time you hear him talk about the movie, he talks, and him and Lakeith, how to them, this was not just making a movie. This was to do some sort of right, some wrong against the legacy of Fred Hampton. Lakeith playing William O'Neill was not easy for Lakeith. He didn't want to play O'Neill. He straight up was like, I ain't trying to play the snitch. He had to get therapy afterwards because he played someone who had his own demons but knew that he had set up Fred to die. And and, and that, that Daniel has been very clear, like, Thank you, Chairman Fred. Thank you, Mama Kua. And with all of this, I left it to last, we saved the house. We saved the house that Chairman Fred Sr. grew up in. And now it's in its way to being completely renovated because of the GoFundMe campaign. And one of the things I did tell the brothers at the beginning, I said, the first thing we have to do is save the house right now from foreclosure. Once we do that, we have to get more money in there. And then once we do that and whatever deal y'all make with the family, it has to be enough to maintain this house, buy some of the adjacent land and get on a pathway to putting it on the national park registry, which then set a stop when people do road trips and they look up, what can I see in Chicago? Well, you can now go to the chairman Fred Hampton senior museum. I love it. For me, that was the most important thing out of all of it. I don't care about box office receipts, what somebody is making as an actor. Save the house. And we did that. Hmm. This is powerful. I love that. I love just the insight and the background of of all of this. Because, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, having grown up in the city of angels, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in that, right? And just forget about what's happening in other parts. But it's, this is this is deep. And I do believe they're on some other level stuff. Um Wow, Rosa, we've covered a lot of ground. I just, I appreciate just the, your work. Um, you know, I feel in solidarity as a, as a, as an Afro Latino myself, as you know, my mom's Mexican, my dad's African-American and, um, just. You're a black chicken. That's it. That's it. That's the next combo we gotta have. That's it. That's yep. Guys, I'm very similar to you. My first language was Spanish. My grandmother raised me. I I didn't speak English right off the bat, which is why my mom kept me out of like kindergarten and all that stuff, man, because my English wasn't good. Um, and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there, but I just want to seriously thank you and just you know commend you for. The work that you're doing and the light that I think you're bringing and stuff, and there is so much more to be done. But um, I'm I'm thankful for what 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 you brought. Well, no, thank you, thank you. This was a really great interview. Asked so many questions, and I always try to end with um, you know folks that may be a little younger and always are you know and are obviously struggling with so much, you know, about. And, and, and obviously do are afraid and sometimes get depressed or, you know, like think that all the things we're doing aren't making a difference because, again, they're seeing someone in their contemporary community killed uh, once again. You know, my, my thing is I always say to young people when I speak to them, I'm like, listen, they've been trying to get rid of us before 400 years. Yeah. 
right? They didn't do that. We organize and we resist and we exist. But that secondly, our history does not begin with oppression. Our history does not begin with colonization, imperialism. We had thousands and thousands of years of, of empires that fell, that rose, that dealt with all the societal issues of those thousands of years, but that if we only see the lens of who we are post-Columbus invasion, we're seeing a very small um, time frame of the history of the world. And that you have to change that mindset, especially if you're raised in the United States and go to public schools, where all they teach is about oppression, 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 not resistance, resistance, resistance. And the fact that most of our movements are destroyed by governmental elements, because when we make movements, we're like what many younger black people say, like when black people are free, we'll all be free. Like black people are trying to get freedom for everybody, not just black people. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, for black people and that young people, you got to always center that because this is like being an organizer is not for the weak. Cool. Like being an organizer has to be end up literally being part of your DNA and being an organizer is not just going out there and protesting and doing a TikTok. Like that's not organizing. Mm. That may be an entry point to it, but you know. When you do this work, it's not nine to five. And and part of that is recognizing that even when we lose, we we do win a lot of things, you know, because essentially this white supremacy system thought none of us would be here right now. And we are here and we're not going anywhere. Amen to that. Amen to that. Shoot. I love that. That's what's up. Well, Rosa, where uh, where can folks find you if they want to reach out to you and, and you know, get you that get you on the, the speaking circuit right up, get you two hundred thousand. Is that what the Clintons make now? Just come <laughs> speak for 40 minutes. <laughs> I wish. That's what the Clintons say. I think they make more. Oh, my God. That's yeah. crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> I used to say that because the other day my, my daughter was like, what's your biggest check? And I told her and she's like, Wow. But it wasn't the same because it was like, it's big, but it ain't like big, big girl. Like, <laughs> I always work with anybody. Um, uh, fo folks can follow me uh, at my Instagram, which is Black Puerto Rican PhD, Facebook. I really try to stay on Twitter for the most part, but yeah. it is Instagram, Facebook. And then I have my website, rosaclemente.net rosaclemente.net and then all the work that we did after hurricane in Puerto Rico people could find on prondemap.com prondemap.com beautiful 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 I'll put all these in the show notes and for those listening of course whitehodgepodcast.com profane faith and you can click on those and support again Rosa thank you so much for taking the time I, I'm hoping we can continue to have more conversations uh, cause I, the work you're doing, I'm, I'm just vibing with it. And maybe it's just cause I don't, I don't know how old you are. I would assume we're similar in age. I'm, I'm a kid of the eighties and nineties and stuff. And so I'm about to be 49 this Sunday, April 18th. And I'm never afraid to say my age. That's I'm it. like, I'm 49 and I'm here. Yes. Yeah, so thank you for having me. And yeah, we definitely got to do something around the black, um, Afro Latino identity work. Yeah. There it is. For sure that. That's my dissertation work, so. Ooh, okay. All right. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Mm -hmm.